Welcome to Rehab Within Reach. We are your hosts, Dr. Chrissy Rankin, physical therapist and CrossFit Level 1 coach. And I'm Dr. Sarah Nelson, a physical therapist, and I'm board certified in women's health and lymphedema therapy, and I also hold a master's degree in orthopedic manual therapy. And I'm Dr. Shona Craig. I'm also a physical therapist, a board certified women's health clinical specialist, certified lymphedema therapist, and yoga teacher. We are a collective of women from various backgrounds who support each other and the community around us that have one thing in common, therapy solutions. This podcast will be addressing how the body, mind, and spirit work together to create our current state of being while offering a refreshing approach to how to create harmony within each system. Our treatment philosophy is to empower people through education by combining modern evidence-based practice with our innate primal wisdom in order to promote body literacy and compassion in your personal healing journey. Even though our professional background started in physical therapy, we take an integrative and holistic approach by addressing all systems of the body in order to bridge the gap between the current medical model in the United States and your ability to make autonomous decisions to achieve independence and wellness. This podcast is meant to challenge you to think in ways that may feel uncomfortable at first, but don't worry. Remember, our goal is to provide resources in order for you to make the best decisions for your well-being, which may go against what most of our society suggests is quote-unquote healthy or correct. As a reminder, this podcast does not replace the medical examination, assessment, and plan of care from a licensed medical provider who has seen you personally. Let's get started. Um, So Katie, hello, and uh, I'm so excited you agreed to talk with us today. So people know you uh, did one of your internships at Therapy Solutions. And now you're practicing physical therapy and doing pelvic health. You even, you sat for your boards too, right? You, you're board certified now, pelvic health specialist. So I like have some pride in what you're doing. (laughs) Thank you for your internship. When was it? When was your? 2013. So we're coming up on nine years here in the fall. Okay. <laughs> We're not that old, right, Sarah? <laughs> no, not at all. I'm going backwards. Yeah. I'm counting backwards, but getting wiser. <laughs> there you go. I like it. <laughs> well, um, we were talking, uh, the last podcast we did, that we were talking about, anyway, one thing led to another, and the topic of this one guy, uh, whose stage presence is chung, chick, chick, what did I say? Um, oh, it's terrible. That I can't remember. Ch- um, worst was the last name. It's the guy, he won um, Eurovision in 2014. He's okay. a gay man whose stage present, Conchita, that's it, I couldn't say. His stage mm-hmm. presence is a bearded woman. And anyway, I just thought of your your practice, which it seems like you're, focusing on um on lgbtq um community and i'm like this is fascinating i want to know what you're doing so oh yeah 
So I've always been in the pelvic health world. Like, I love that. That's what I started doing right after I graduated from UW and getting to do an internship with you. And then one thing that's really affected me is just seeing how different people who are transgender or non-binary maybe weren't getting like the best care they could in the local health systems or just not finding providers that understood the struggles they were going through. And then another impetus for me getting even further into pelvic health um, specific to transgender people was my spouse started transitioning two years ago, shortly after the birth of my second kiddo. And so it's kind of a process of like, how do hormones affect the body and how do you really find those providers that um, really treat you well? And then even for my own health, um, I've recently started transitioning to transmasculine. So I started testosterone about a month ago. Um, And so it's definitely like also an invested interest in myself about like, how do I keep myself healthy? Uh, But along the way, again, I've met some really great clients and um, I wouldn't be practicing anywhere else. (laughs) That's amazing. So then great then conversation of our start, then what would you like us to like what name would you like us to use? Oh, yeah. what? I still use Katie, um, but I'd use they, them pronouns. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and so with my practice, uh, a lot of who I help are pregnant people who are trans or non-binary. And maybe, um, you know, one thing that they actually struggle with is some of the body positivity that comes up in physical therapy. Like, oh, like, lo- we love your growing body or look at how big your belly is getting. And these people may not want to think about their body at all. Um, dysphoria refers to the feeling when people just don't feel right with their body, especially related um, to gender. So you'll hear this phrase gender dysphoria. And so if somebody goes to just any physical therapist, um, they might miss that. And so that's kind of my hope is being a physical therapist that supports queer people is that I can limit how much I trigger that dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how that can, that can spread into so many different topics. Like, yes, in regards to trans and non-binary people and people with experience with eating disorders and um, sexual trauma and um, how the things that we do say, despite us feeling like they are inclusive and or supportive, can actually be harmful in a different way. Yeah. And just even bringing up that. So one thing that we see overlap is when somebody's marginalized, then more factors come up. They're more um, exposed to violent crime. They're more exposed to eating disorders, mental health challenges due to the pressures of society. And so also having that awareness of all those other factors becomes so much more important. So this is one place where you'll hear trauma-informed care come up. Like you kind of go into situations assuming there's trauma versus waiting for people to disclose to you um, before you act differently yeah a hundred percent and unfortunately we now know that trauma is so much more uh so much more widespread and between big t's and little t's that um we just should always step in in that space of knowing that that could be something that we have to be mindful of totally Mm -hmm. wow wow um so we had questions, um, so I'll go through them. Okay. Um, and just to keep the the conversation rolling too. Um, so you have an interesting name for your practice. Yeah. 
It's almost a joke. So my practice name is B3 Physical Therapy. And Bs are for bellies, bottoms, and backs. I'm somebody where I really like focusing on the core of people. <laughs> I'm not really a neck person. I'm not really like a hand, you know, foot PT. <laughs> but I'll loop those things in when I need to. <laughs> I really like that. How did how did you come up with that? We were, I was joking with some coworkers at the last place I worked. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like that's what I like to focus on. Yeah. Um, I know I couldn't think of a better name. And when you start a business, you kind of just have to run with it and go with it, and also have a name that nobody's picked before. <laughs> um, so that's where I settled. Yeah, yeah. For a while, um, like the when we were dreaming up this podcast, we were trying to like name it completely different and just get a little maybe creative, and then also trying to like reinvent the wheel. Um, but Sarah already made this logo like years ago with therapy solutions and on the bottom was that rehab within reach and we're like let's just keep like why reinvent the wheel like let's keep it up (laughs) and I looked it up and no one had that name I'm like perfect we'll go with it totally yeah um and you know we're finding too that when you're treating the pelvic if you're treating a back you you got to treat the pelvic floor I'm oh for sure not sure how therapists who are treating the back are not addressing the pelvic floor. Yeah. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, we're still in this world of separate body parts and the the lack of understanding that we are all connected is still not quite in the forefront of medicine. And part of that is just our training. You know, we train joint by joint, at least in the PT world, and that's easy for testing. So, um it's hard um, to go have that shift of, oh yeah, we are all connected. We're not just mechanic parts that need to be replaced. So, and um, boy, this, it would be interesting to compare notes to on the trauma piece. I don't know what you're finding, but um, like, you know how we, you run specials, like you'll, I remember when I was the hand therapist, like we'd get three wrist fractures in a row or something, but in the, so oh, pelvic yeah. floor specials, <laughs> well, maybe it'd be nice to have three pro prolapses in a row. That does happen, but with the trauma, <laughs> the trauma ones are. Um, we've had a couple where we have to have two therapists in the room because the emotional release and the um, doing the pelvic floor assessment is so intense for the patient. Um, what so? What are you finding with? your patients now because you've if you have a population that's at higher risk I you know I'll probably be honest and say I'm not a PT who's doing like a ton of somatic work or emotional um release work usually somebody will come to me with a pretty specific problem like I have back pain and pregnancy um and so some people they want to talk about like what went, went into that and so usually for me it looks like gradual conversations over time going through that trauma versus I remember something during my internship that was so fascinating with you is that there could be these big like um, emotional releases like at one time. Um, I get, I maybe get like little releases. So it hasn't been too intense, thank goodness. Um, But definitely um, I know that that trauma is there. Your presence probably does it need words, you know? Oh, thank you. Yeah, if they know that somebody has a a similar experience or, you know, that understands that 
probably provides a lot of, of comfort and safety. Yeah. And that was, that's perfect. Cause then my next question was, um, besides having that presence that you do, um, that I can even tell just in the past 10 minutes, um, how, what else have you found has been helpful to create that safe space for, um, people that you work with? I think a big thing has been, um, like putting my labels out there, like making sure people can read online, like, yep, I'm non-binary. Yep. I'm listing my pronouns. And then, um, kind of further along, like intake forms, trying to keep that gender neutral as possible. I definitely make sure like everything's listed as optional, um, to fill out in a form so that nobody feels like they have to put something about themselves. They don't want to put about themselves. And then, um, when it comes to the clinic space, um, sometimes it helps people just to, again, know like, Hey, this is about an hour long visit. Bathrooms are over there. Um, if you need to get up and step out any time, um, you know, this is your time. So use it however you like. And then um, also telling people like you can stop anytime you want anything to stop. Uh, if you can't talk, you can raise your hand. And I, mm. I feel lucky that nobody's had to use that raising their hand because they can't talk. But that's something I wish I maybe had included like earlier in my practice, mm. um, just because I'm starting to become aware, especially of how many people um, are perhaps um, having like autism or other forms of neurodivergence where they can talk really great one moment, but maybe not talk so well um, the next moment. So speaking of overlap, there's also this large overlap between the trans and non-binary community as well as the neurodivergent community. My personal theory is it's related to collagen and it gets into like hypermobility because you also see that cluster with hypermobility. And yeah. so um, sometimes as a physical therapist, I'm diagnosing somebody with hypermobility. It's like, oh, okay, maybe you also want to look into testing for neurodivergence and surprise, like, I don't know, three years later, you come out as trans. Yeah. <laughs> it's a common pipeline. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I just recently had a patient who uh, she is coming she, I, the second time just coming to me and talking about how she went into preterm labor with all four of her children. And then she also has POTS. And uh, I was like, oh, I think we there's this hypermobility situation. And then she was saying um, that her sisters were um, in their 20s and getting um, in this process of trying to um, get an ADHD diagnosis. And I was like, oh, this all is just making way too much sense. Um, so I, I, I am, um, we are finding this in the clinic too, maybe so not so much quite yet, um, in the LGBTQ community. Um, but I'm sure, um, in some point that we'll, we'll also start seeing that too. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, owning that part of yourself is, yeah. can take a long time and being in a community that supports that makes a difference too. Yeah. So us being in a more conservative community yeah. um, might slow that process down. Yeah. Um, so the, our clinic being a safe space is important. Definitely. That's what it's telling me, what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, there's like different ways of like signaling. And so um, that, like that signaling can be really subtle, but people pick up on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's a question I'm going to jump the gun on. Uh, one question you had sent me ahead of time was um, like, how does working with the queer community affect you? And I just want to say it's really affected me with like authenticity. So it's like when you work with people that like don't maybe have to be closeted when they're with you or um, are striving for their best and truest version of themselves all the time, that's just like so contagious. So that's another reason I just really love um, working within this population. There's a lot of bravery in being your own self when it's different than um, accepted norms. For sure. And it's so interesting because, you know, somebody could move to Washington thinking, oh, Washington's accepting, but then really geographically within Washington, there can be such, you know, challenging pockets. And I could see, you know, the Tri-Cities perhaps being one of those pockets. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I I have to... um, in my experiences at the clinic with having a couple people who were uh, queer and realizing my language was being really heteronormative, um, especially when it came to dyspareunia situation and how, um, oh yeah, we can have dyspareunia or any type of pain with penetration. doesn't have to be a penis, right? Um, And how despite the knowledge that we have and the best intentions that we have in order to make that non heteronormative, um, it, it pops up and it's that unlearning and then relearning, um, it, it takes, it takes time. And I have to be, um, uh, give myself compassion, um, for the time and, um, not make it a big deal when I make a mistake. Um, you know, just, oh, I apologize, I'm going to do better and then move on, you know, kind of a thing. So um, even when you are well aware um, and supportive, it, it's lots of unlearning to do, that's for sure. Okay. For that quick correction and in, in that like mellow, low-key correction, that's so great. Yeah, I've heard that a lot of times where people have said like when you make it a bigger deal, it's actually like you're making it about yourself and not about the person that you're trying to communicate with. And then that takes away the that safety sometimes. So, um, uh, that's good. That's good feedback to know for sure. And I think also in this idea of like, we used to have like cultural competency, like, Oh, we will know another culture and you just can't know another culture unless you live it. And we all live slightly different cultures. And so I love this idea of cultural humility where it's okay to ask, like, what terms do you prefer for your anatomy? Um, how do you want me to try doing this today? Um, can you explain a little bit more about how you live your life so I can best help you? Those are great questions. I like those. Um, so I think you're, you're answering the questions. What have you learned from working with this population? There's a lot of wisdom in this that can be applied to any population. Just being more sensitive to how different people are. Mm Yeah, so I guess something else I've learned that hasn't come up yet. Um, So again, most of my practice is on pregnancy and postpartum. That's kind of my entry point to pelvic health, (laughs) where I've built up like my referral networks and whatnot. But I also do help people after gender affirming surgeries. So this can be after they either get um, breast augmentations or tissue added, or sometimes we'll say like top reduction or top removal surgery. And again, kind of with that dysphoria, we're sort of eliminating that B word in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, um, you know, vaginoplasty, so the creation of a new vagina. Um, and sometimes people will have other surgeries, but those are some of the most common ones um, that I'll help people with after um, a procedure. 
so that is interesting to me, the rehab of, of, of that. So, and I might ask, I, if I apologize, if what I say, this is a learning um, opportunity, right? I have wondered about, um, putting oneself through intensive surgery, like, uh, to construct a vagina that mm-hmm. one, I mean, what are you finding with that? Are, are they, you know, are they going well for people generally, or do they, they end up with chronic pain or? So, um, top surgery, if it's top flattening tends to go pretty well. The biggest thing we're watching out for is scarring. And so it's a lot of scar education. I learned in part from you, like scar massage. Um, and then like, you know, talking to people about like making sure they're using their silicone to keep that scar flat and mobile, um, watching out for like signs of keloid. So that tends to go well. Um, the breast augmentation also tends to go fairly well, but as we know, um, there are different types. So if somebody's own, um, fat tissue is moved around, I expect that to go well, but if somebody has an implant, we know implants aren't a forever thing. And so also making people, um, aware of like what they might notice in their body, perhaps long-term planning. Um, if they were having an issue where like, you know, there's a contracture around one implant or one implant moves significantly relative to another. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily fixing that, but I might be helping them with their scars or their mobility um, while they're working to figure out a surgical fix um, with a surgeon, perhaps later down the road. And then mm-hmm. as far as the vaginoplasties, um, I'm going to say those are a good surgery overall. Like every surgery that makes somebody feel better about themselves and more whole is good. What's tough about vaginoplasty is that, yes, it is a big surgery. So right after surgery, um, you know, it's certainly a painful procedure. Um, pain control is a big thing. And then what's tough is you can have, it's kind of like childbirth in a sense where like childbirth, um, you can make a plan, you know, you can get baby out vaginally, but certain things can be torn or not lined up. Um, there can be really new painful spots that develop afterwards. And so when somebody has a new vagina made either because they're trans or perhaps they're intersex, you know, and they were never born with like as full of a vagina as they wanted. Um, then sometimes we'll see granulation tissue, which is that really painful red tissue that we'll also see again after tearing in childbirth. Mm. And so I feel like the granulation tissue is the biggest thing I'm up against. And as a PT, I can't treat granulation tissue directly. I've got to send somebody to get like silver nitrate or perhaps even grafting. And so what I feel so bad for is when people have to go back for grafting to maybe um, clean up some of the granulation tissue or tissue that didn't heal the first time around. So I would say if gender affirming surgeries were more available widely, this wouldn't be such an issue. So I might have a patient that say goes to the East coast for surgery, flies back, and then their surgeon doesn't have eyes on their healing. And so the patient might be saying it hurts a lot. And the surgeon on the East coast might be saying, Oh, that's normal. That's normal. That's normal. And then we've got like two months of granulation tissue growth. And it's like, oof, like now we're looking at like a whole nother surgery. So that's where I feel like the snag comes up is like the difficulty with follow-up because of how spread out the surgeons are versus it being like a really tough surgery. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'll represent the ignorant um, older person like my generation, okay, <laughs> to realize I didn't, I had no idea there was anything different than um, boy, girl until I was like 12. 
(laughs) And from what we've been hearing, like 12 is actually, I think, you know, people don't even acknowledge that ever. So um, I do, you know, that is a good thing too, that knowing that there are at 12, there's differences. Yeah. Well, the, the, I was in the dance world. And so uh, a few of the dancers in the ballet company were, were gay. So that, that was just like shocking to me, (laughs) but it, okay. So then I forget my question, but um, so what I think about, because I have my, I've had a big growth in this area to coming from a very conservative Christian point of view that we can just imagine what that was over to getting trained as a physical therapist in pelvic health and realizing, oh man, was I wrong. (laughs) And, um, you know, I don't remember the statistics, but if you look at the number of babies born with um, differences, (laughs) right? Um, That we don't think about how the body can be... um, it can have a birth defect where it's not coming out as the gender of the person. Mm-hmm. And um, so supporting through surgery, we would do that for other children with other birth defects. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I, I hope people listening will, it'll, it'll encourage them to um, question what we grew up with. Um, oh, are you seeing a, a change recently in your practice of maybe um, talking with parents more or having children who are trans or non-binary um, and, or anything in the, in, in the umbrella of the queer community um, now versus maybe even like a few years ago? Ooh, I'm going to answer that question and I'm going to answer a little bit of the last question. So... I definitely, I got sidetracked in my brain. So I talk to parents a lot about these gender differences. Oh, talking about kids. <laughs> One of my kids, I can't. Um, what's going on, buddy? Oh, this is my, <laughs> this is my youngest. <laughs> uh, hey, Nico, can you go watch TV? You want to sit in my lap? Okay. You can hang out and watch Faces with me. Okay, great to um, see Nico. Hi. Yeah. Oh, here, I'll bring this down. <laughs> um, so sometimes I'm working with parents who maybe are just, you know, cis het, um, and they have a kid that's just been born. And I can think of like one parent where their kid had um, what's called a micro penis. And the parent of this newborn was very keen, going back to like, you know, when do we do surgery? Very keen to do surgery on this infant. And I was like, well, you know, sometimes like how their genitals develop may change throughout their life, or they may want to have some input on how their genitals develop. Um, and this person wasn't really having it, but um, I hope that more parents out there get that message that their kids' genitals may be different or not what they expected or like, you know, kind of between um, what they expected. Hi, Katie. I just want to say I'm I'm here listening in, even though my camera's oh, not listening, but <laughs> yeah, I love what you've, you've got to say so far. It's, I, I was just saying it's a topic that I'm also not as familiar with, but you're explaining things really well and really clearly so i appreciate it thank you yeah and i've got a baby of my own too so during these podcasts he likes to chime in as well (laughs) (laughs) i like it you're not alone in that (laughs) thank you
Um, I, Chrissy, I think you may ask you to repeat your question a third time now. <laughs> oh, that's fine. It was just asking, have you seen a shift in access of care or people coming to you that are children um, that parents are bringing um, to help with that gender affirming care and um, how you use that in, uh, you know, treating public health and children is very different than treating adults in public health. So just, you know, have you noticed that in the past few years that that's happening? Yes. Cause I, in the first few years of my practice, I definitely know I wasn't um, seeing it. And then what's happening now, again, in a good way with the expansion of gender affirming surgeries, is I will certainly see these um, people who are getting their gender affirming surgery right on their 18th birthday. And in some places, um, you may see people as young as 14 getting top surgery, although I personally um, haven't seen that in my practice, just, you know, numbers and odds and all that. Um, But then I will see people um, perhaps for um, pelvic pain that's come up. Um, They're younger. And usually if I'm working with people who have pelvic pain and they're perhaps in their early teens, then we'll do a lot of like yoga, breathing, breathing. talking about stress and the role that stress plays in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you getting a fair number of, of teenagers with the pelvic pain? I think we're seeing more. Uh, yes. Right now, the pediatric kiddos I'm working with, um, it, it's kind of totally separate, like encoparesis, um, which is when there's, you know, constipation mucking up the whole GI tract. Mm-hmm. So you're getting, yeah. Um, we should uh, interview one of our own colleagues, Laura McGuckin at the clinic. And yes. she's, that's her number one is pediatric um, pelvic floor. Yeah. And, and we haven't expanded into that LGBTQ uh, realm. So it'd be interesting if she does start seeing that population become referred um uh soon you know who knows yeah because yeah, going back to numbers i think the highest concentration of trans people in the u.s is kind of in like the um dc metro area which is high as a one in 30 but typically we think about one in 200 people being mm-hmm. transgender and not everybody's gonna seek health care so i don't expect like oh every 200 patients you will see one but certainly at least like one or two in a year whether people disclose or not mm-hmm yeah. Well, and uh, I'm just seeing like the next generations understand themselves better and be uh, not universally, but I, I just think <laughs> of the people that I know in my family, um, like one of my daughters-in-laws open, openly talks about being um, bisexual, um, but in a committed relationship, which, which um it's a different, it's a different thought, you know, you can, it's owning your sexuality and choosing what kind of relationship you're going to be in are different things. For sure. Cause that's another piece that plays into all of this is like um, also an awareness of like the background relationships. And so um, you also see people um, who uh, are polyamorous um, but there are also people who are asexual and like how to um, balance recognizing those needs. If somebody says they're asexual and they don't want to talk about sex, all like, okay, cool. That's not your pelvic pain goal. I will <laughs> scratch that off and not ask about it again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but people may also interact with different partners in different ways. And so um, depending on where they're living or who they're partnered with, like the sexual activities may vary and be unique. And knowing how there's a spectrum in that spectrum, you know, yeah. um, that I, I did a paper in undergrad about um, asexuality, and that was more than 10 years ago. And it's amazing, even now, looking into it again and seeing better information about the mm-hmm. spectrum. And it's, it is, and it's fast paced. Like I can, I can see how people can get a little like, I just don't understand this because it's just constantly changing and I can never get it right. Um, but we try, we just keep trying and we learn and we are open and, um, uh, we, who to say that we are right or wrong, you know, that other people are wrong, you know? So, um, definitely lots of learning (laughs) on learning and learning (laughs) for sure. (laughs) And certainly being in the pelvic health arena has really been the place that kind of accelerates that awareness of we know nothing about sexuality and uh, there's professionals say OBGYN who uh, at time not all OBGYN but but they, they don't want to talk about it oncologists we find that don't want to talk about it because they don't know there's no professional training about the about sexuality and, um, you know, it was taking a course from a sexologist uh, who practiced uh, Heather Howard in um, San Francisco that really helped me to start to understand that you can study this issue based on history, um, uh, physiology, anatomy, uh, gender study, psychology, and religion down the line, you know, <laughs> and um, uh and so I think us as pelvic floor therapists are, are kind of trying to make up um, ground because when you're treating the pelvis, it, it's one of the functions. How is this person uh, using that function? How do they want to use that function? Um, how can I talk to them about it and not set off uh, alarms for them? Um, what are you what are you finding, Katie? Oh gosh. Um, I'm somebody where I try and um, you know, oh gosh, okay, so here's actually my process. And so people reach out to me and then I talk to them over Zoom because first, and I really like that because it creates some distance. So if somebody's like, you know, kind of shy or doesn't know if they can disclose, it's like they've got a lot of control over that. If, um, sometimes I'll talk to people where they like really just want the camera off and just to <laughs> communicate that way. Um, and so kind of giving people that chance to feel me out and, and also for me to figure out kind of um, how they're doing. And then in that first visit, um, you know, giving them say, you can talk about what you want to talk about. If you have a topic you don't want me to talk about, I'm not going to ask that. Um, I'm going to type some notes, but if you want to see my notes at any time, I'll turn my laptop around and you can tell me if I got it right or if there's anything you want me to modify. Um, and certainly if it comes to sexual activities or substance use, I'll double check um, if that can go in the note or not. So do you have a, since that is part of the process, um, then do you also uh, talk about, oh, maybe we need to see some other people regarding, like, is your network 
really varied and available to people that if they need if you feel like after you have that zoom consultation and start talking like do we is the first thing that we say like oh we need more people on board or do we like step into that a little bit um down the road oh i feel really lucky um i have a few urogynecologists that have given me their cell phone numbers so if it is somebody who is assigned female at birth and it's like a pregnancy or postpartum issue um then i can get them like hey go like get this pessary and then we'll meet again in like two weeks after you have that or something um if it's like for a prolapse issue pessary being a tool to help keep everything up inside uh and then for other diagnoses, like certainly I can say like, hey, you know, get on this surgeon's books. They're going to be six months out, but I need you to like ask now because <laughs> the quicker we get this ball rolling for like, say, a surgical repair, the better. Um, and so I do feel lucky to have a nice team. I think what's hard in the Seattle area is that we're growing. And I don't know if the healthcare pop or the population of healthcare workers is not necessarily keeping up with that growth. And so we see a number of like the large um, hospitals, such as um, UW being booked out in their pelvic health, like four months or not even opening their books yet to new people. And so there's definitely a huge pelvic health need. So sometimes I'll see people for UW when UW can't get people in. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, we're finding that too. There's just a growing demand. Yeah. But you, you wonder how big the problem is out there. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> it could be huge. Yeah. And that's what we love. In the month of April, we had 95 referrals sent to our clinic. Wow. Um, and 10 of those were for mental health and massage. Um, and you know, there's a part of you that's like, as a business person, you're like, oh, that's great. That means like, we're the preferent, like, preferred provider. Um, People know that we um, help people. Um, It's a safe space. And then on the other hand, you're also like, more and more people are struggling. And, um, and we and our the Tri-Cities definitely is not keeping up with demand on um, providing health care for people. Um, and so then we're like, then we're trying, how, then how do we promote people to come to these areas, um, that are limited in access and how can we get creative? Um, and it's, it's definitely challenging, um, trying to make it all work. Um, and we're all empathetic people who we got into this job because we want to help. And so, um, it takes a toll, that's for sure. So how do you, maybe we've answered this already, but in how would you, it seems like what you're offering is a vital service to the, to this population. I, I think anyone can come to you, right? It does, regardless yeah. of gender. But um, my interest was in watching, not, was watching your practice and the things that you, I think you put some stuff out last year in Pride Month that was just outstanding. And then I'm watching your family and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's raising her kids general, gen, gender neutral. I think I'm like, you're just, you're just grabbing hold of this. <laughs> um, like what? Yeah, right on cue. Right on cue. It's Nico. She's full of energy. Let's meet her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, sweetie. <laughs> How? What are you, um, I think somehow this is vital for people. Hi, sweetie. How are you doing? 
<laughs> so yeah, Hi. my youngest, who's just a smidge over two on my lap. Oh my uh, gosh. Ooh, so, that's awesome. <laughs> So the advantage of, or the disadvantage of the Seattle area is maybe the lack of healthcare providers. The advantage is the diversity of people and communities. Um, and so certainly um, I'll meet people on Facebook, you know, as friends about, hey, who's going through the similar parenting thing? Or even talking to my clients about parenting, like how do we make it work? Um I mean, there are snags, you know, you'll hear people say like, well, your kids are going to be bullied. And I'm like, well, I think that's like society's problem versus like something I'm doing to my kids. Um, and it's been Dada. really fun Dada. to, hi, <laughs> you're wondering where Dada is? Um, see my kids like be excited to, you know, both kids try and dresses or experiment with clothes and um, have that freedom that maybe like some other kids don't get. And I know, like, I've heard one concern of, like, oh, it'll take forever for your kids to figure themselves out, or it'll just be longer. I'm like, is that a bad thing if it, like, my kids think harder and try figuring themselves out? I think earlier we were talking about Gen Z and, like, yeah, they've got it, like, figured out more. Your daughter-in-law's got it figured out a little bit more. Um, I'm hoping my kids grow up with more vocabulary um, and more ideas of what they can be if that's what they want to be. Yeah. Oh, having raised kids in that, like I had three boys and the, the clothing selection for boys were like brown and blue with no patterns. Well, and the recent too, I've been seeing a lot on social media about the sizing for boys and girls in, in, a, in a binary world and how the sizes for a three-year-old gendered specific girl in our society versus like a one-year-old boy's clothes like there's and despite them being the same size and growth until like seven eight years old and it's actually really frightening um that kind of like early sexualization and gender specific things even at at infancy like it's it's mind boggling to me um, that it starts at such a young age. Um, so the boys clothes are bigger than the girls. Oh yeah. So like the, the one-year-old technically boys clothes um, are bigger than the three-year-old girls clothes. And yet they all like are the same size up until they're around seven or eight years old. So why is the fabric amount different um, or less. Um, and usually then the girls clothes also cost more. So with being less fabric. Um, so it's just a lot, like, I mean, from, we're like starting from the very infancy, I mean, you know, there's also people that have onesies that say like, you know, uh, I'm a, you know, a womanizer, you know, at a month old. And you're just like, I don't understand why we even have gendered things at such a young age. Um, have, um, Katie, have you found that there are companies out there that are trying, like clothing companies or um, or toy companies or anything like that, that are really trying to make things as gender neutral as possible? Oh, I'll be honest. I don't recall if they're gender neutral as possible, but I know a lot of people will order through like primary.com because it's like, we're really just going by size and what color it is. And maybe... <laughs> Maybe like dresses are listed as girls, but um, I think that choice over color and size kind of helps some kiddos have things to play with. Um, 
And then thrift shopping is always fun. <laughs> I think 90% of my kids' clothes are hand-me-downs from other parents. So then it just means we have these like big buckets of clothes to play with versus like, oh, this is what you're wearing today. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, we've definitely gotten like hand-me-downs of all genders. <laughs> yes. I think the freedom of, of they, them is to look at the person for the person rather than a sexual label. So I, I hope that more people will embrace this with time. It's awkward. I I struggle with it because it's a, yeah. a language change. But I know I've had um, one patient who wanted to be they, and talking to they that way was yeah. freeing to me. It was so strange. Like, I did not realize how much the label he, she created a bias, a judgment, an expectation. Yeah. And and they encourages seeing who is this person. And that it's not a sexual relationship with me. It's a heart to heart connection. Very, very fascinating. I hope people will um, try it out if they haven't. <laughs> yeah. Um, that. So, you know, I thank you for what you're doing. I just uh, think, and uh, um, I know that you've started. I think you're you've taught a class for Herman and Wallace too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, on perinatal mental health. On which mental health? On the oh, perinatal mental health. Oh, that's another big area. For totally, yeah. yeah. Can you? Um, how were you approached? Or were you approached by Herman and Wallace, or did you go to them? And oh, Herman and Wallace told me like, whenever you're ready to make a class, you make it. And I didn't have a class idea for a long time. <laughs> um, and then I realized, you know what? This perinatal mental health stuff is just so key. And so I come from a background of volunteering on the local call line for parents going through um, mental health challenges and helping connect them to resources. So it's already um, something that I was like familiar with and could speak to. And so a lot of what mental health support in the perinatal period may look like from a physical therapist could be um, support around exercise. Exercise increases the chance that postpartum depression will resolve. Um, also talking about nutrition. Um, I know Sarah and like your whole team's great on this, um, but you know, if we're low on protein, our brain's not going to work well. If we're low on vitamin D, it's not going to help. Oh, I got to find my kiddo a pen. Is, is there a pen in here, Nico? There's <laughs> a pen. Okay, there you go. All right. Um, I mean, the other piece is like sleep. Um, You know, a mental health therapist treating somebody in the perinatal period isn't going to be able to tell if there's a mental health problem or, uh, you know, a sleep problem until that sleep's treated. So if PTs can get the ball rolling on the sleep as soon as possible, that's huge. Um, And then also just the relaxation. There's some really fun stuff about um, it's new research on progressive relaxation, reducing the number of kids going to the NICU even. So like getting that started during pregnancy and really helping people um, reduce stress as much as possible. With the perinatal period, it's tough because it's like, we don't want people to stress about stress, but we also need that stress to come down. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So I'm hearing all the things that you're talking about. And I'm like, how do you take care of yourself? Um, with what, I mean, the things that you're doing are amazing and also taxing on you as a person. So how do you take care of yourself? So I, a big switch in like why I wanted to go into private practice was just to treat a lower volume. Like I can't see 10 people a day and offer that level of like attention and making sure I'm tracking all the things. And so I usually try, maybe have a caseload of, um, like 10 to 20 people at a time. So pretty easy to manage. Um, and then I also really diversify what I do throughout the day. So I'm somebody where I get recharged doing multiple different things. So I'll do PT visits, but um, I'm also a birth doula and I had a like awesome birth a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was like water birth, downtown Virginia Mason in Seattle. And um, I think 75% of the care team was trans, which I thought was really wild. Like with a wow. trans man midwife. Yeah. Um, and then I also have fun um, teaching for Herman and Wallace, but also for other organizations as well. And then as you can hear in the background with the scuffling noise of watching my kids, <laughs> you're taking breaks to play with your kids. That's kind of recharging. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, and then you do search and rescue. Do you still do search and rescue? Yeah. So um, I've been in search and rescue in King County since 2009. And um, you know, I'm not as active as I used to be. I got to pick the missions where I'm not going to be away overnight for my kids. So I'll drive my spouse crazy. <laughs> um, but I'll do like little evidence searches or I'll help um, with like the weekend patrols and stuff to go visit all the trailheads. And orienteering. Oh, yeah. And I love navigation racing. <laughs> yeah, you're just reminding me why, like, I really wanted you to come and live over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not going to happen, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, is there um, any other trends that you feel? So we've, that we're like kind of skipping around, which is what we usually do, which is <laughs> right? um, We talked about um, like children within the LGBTQIA population and like talking to parents and and all that stuff. Do you see other trends or do you, in your practice in particular, or where public health is like going in the future? Yeah. So one of the trends I really wanted to talk about um, is aging. So we'll often refer to people as like assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth or intersex. And so for those people who were like assigned female at birth or intersex um, with a vagina, is that, you know, those people may be on hormones, um, they may be experiencing atrophy due to hormones they're taking for gender affirmation if they're, say, like transmasculine or a trans man. And so we're used to this idea of helping people prepare for menopause, but we're, we don't necessarily talk about like, well, how do you help a trans man prepare for menopause? Or perhaps they're having menopause early because they're choosing to have a hysterectomy um, or do testosterone. And so I think, you know, trans people have always existed, but the access to hormones has been really limited, perhaps, you know, in the, the past decades. And so as people get more access to hormones, we'll have to be thinking about how do we support those people? Um, you know, if they still have a vagina, if they didn't have a vaginectomy, um, does, you know, is there atrophy? Do we need to be talking to them about estrogen creams? Um, do we need to be talking to them about like bone density? Um, you know, changes in metabolism and like staying active. Because um, Sarah, I know you definitely have a good emphasis on menopause in your practice. Yeah, there's another population to consider. That's a that's a good insight.
Well, you know what, too, it does. It puts a positive spin on it, too, doesn't it? Because I, I think that menopause should not be seen as a negative thing. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a step into power, I think, in some ways. And uh, what a step into power to say this is who I am <laughs> for a, a whole nother reason. That's cool. Definitely. And it's funny, too, because I'll talk to people where they're like, oh, you know, maybe they're a cis woman and they're getting a hysterectomy and they think, like, I'm never going to be able to run or exercise again. And I think about, like, the, you know, the trans man who's like, oh, and now I'm going to weight lift harder. I'm going to go running more. <laughs> and so we all um, kind of perceive our bodies in different ways. But I do also want to honor, like, what that uterus meant to that cis woman and that that's, um, you know, a harder loss than just a surgical removal of an unneeded part for perhaps a trans man are you are you finding that um a trans masculine or trans man starting on hormones um having maybe osteoporosis or that menopause like changes like early on in their in their lives or is that even possible? I actually don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, so um, let me think. <laughs> My kid is like patting the wood. Hey, Nico, can you come over here? Yeah. No? <laughs> <laughs> Nico, you can you want to be my brother? Okay, you can yeah. see here. Okay, okay. <laughs> like, Nico's very sensitive to the fact that I might be trying to kick them out. Okay, so <laughs> when people start testosterone, um, that can often like help with gro- growth of the erectile tissue. So there is often clitoral enlargement. And so that may be positive. But one of the downsides is there can often be vaginal atrophy. And that's not something that usually starts immediately. That may be a few years down the road. And so that's where you can get that like papery thin lining or um, bleeding or tearing happening really easy um, at the vaginal tissues. Somebody may say like middle canal or the front hole. Um, and so I think that's the main thing I'm worried about is just people knowing their options because if somebody, you know, it's like, if you're a man, you might not feel comfortable going to a gynecologist, but then who do you connect with to offer you that like help around, um, tissues or, um, you know, routine screening for cancer, or if you have abnormal bleeding with the bone density, it kind of depends. Um, bone density can be changed both if people go like on and off hormones as well as if they've had like a hysterectomy or not. So I don't have like a quick, easy answer to, um, how the bone density changes. Something I did not think about at all. Yeah. Um, Any other trends? I like the one you brought up. That was uh, the. What do you think? Okay. I think the other trend is just surgery sooner in life. So in Mm -hmm. Washington state, um, Medicaid needs to cover these surgeries. And so people have, if they're savvy, have time to get their letters and everything done. And so I think just being ready to help um, younger people um, go through these challenges. I think it's a lot different when you're helping an 18 year old through surgery versus if you're helping like a 50 year old person through surgery. Mm-hmm. And even just like the advocacy skills needed, like, um, I, you know, if your first rodeo of dealing with doctors who don't reply or, you know, challenges and cares at 18, it's a lot harder again than say if you're like 50. Yeah. That's like, uh, breast Cancer in a 50-year-old is a different disease than in a 20-year-old. It's a different mm-hmm. disease. So yeah. not that this is a disease, but it's a di- whole different, oh, no. <laughs> right? It's a, it's a whole different ball game when 
depending on that person's stage of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's the one thing you want the public to know about the practice, um, about your practice or about pelvic health in general? I just want people to know that there's specialized care for trans issues. So, so many people just don't even know that like, oh, say that vaginoplasty, they're struggling with their dilators. Like, hey, there are people that are specialized to help you with your dilator program. Or if you're having, you know, pain in your scars after top surgery, there is like scar massage for that. Um, And now I am based in like a small (laughs) location, like geographically speaking, just Washington. My license doesn't extend to other states, but I'm always happy to try and help people connect to providers in other states. And that's one thing I've really enjoyed about the pandemic is it's forced so many of us online that have been making friends and, you know, um, transgender health all over the country. And so I'm again, happy to plug people in. Oh, neat. Well, Katie, I think we should have you again sometime. I love oh, what you're doing. You. Yeah. I'm, I like, I'm like, I said at the start of this, I, I'm just so proud of where you've taken your career. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. And that, and, and just seeing you also as a, as a person, you know, come into your own. Makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Uh, Go ahead and plug like any social media, any social or any like newsletters that you do or any or any other courses that you have. Oh, gotcha. Um, my main social is on Instagram and it's all uh, letters. It's B3PTCO. So for B3 Physical Therapy Company. Um, and that's where you can, you know, if you send me a DM, <laughs> if you want to get some education, that's a great spot. Um, and again, I'm like probably at my limit um, bandwidth wise that I don't make a newsletter or anything else. But um, I love interacting with people on Instagram. <laughs> And then is the perinatal mental health class with Herman Wallace the only class you have, or have you done other classes? That's the only one that's coming up on the schedule. So I believe that's going to be a July 10th remote class, four hours with two hours of um, lecture head time. So it shouldn't be like too intense, like pretty digestible. And it's really... um, interaction-based. There's a lot of breakout sessions to discuss things. And so it's not um, just being weighed down by Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Good. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for being a willing participant in our first guest lecture and uh, willingness to be authentic and be here and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It was so nice to talk to you all this morning as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, good. We won't wait so long. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode. Our group tends to have these fantastic discussions and we always ask ourselves why we haven't recorded any of them. And now here we are. If you are interested in more content, we'll be releasing new episodes every other Monday. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Therapy Solutions PLLC. That PLLC is super important. This is the Rehab Within Reach podcast, where all are encouraged to experience wholeness and independence. See you soon.